Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have two guests on the show that are going to be talking about a new report that came out from the program on extremism. And the report is titled This is the Aftermath Assessing Domestic Violent Extremism One Year After the Capital Siege. So I'm very happy to have Bennett Clifford and John Lewis from Program on Extremism back on the Loopcast. So, first of all, Thank you both for coming back on the show. Thank you for having us. Yeah, looking forward to it as always, Chelsea. And for our listeners, Bennett is a senior research fellow at Program on Extremism, and his research focuses on violent extremist movements and organizations in the United States, as well as the Caucasus and Central Asia, as well as the Balkans. And then John is a research fellow also at Program on Extremism, and his research focuses on homegrown violent extremism domestic violent extremism, with specializations in the evolution of white supremacists and anti-government movements, and U.S. and federal responses to this threat. So they are well, well researched and versed in this topic, and um, this is going to be a great show. So to start off with, why don't we just um, have a bit of an idea of what your research methodology was for this um, amazing report that's chocked full of information? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when we talk about the research the program has done into the events of January 6th, um, I think it really starts on that day, that night, the morning after, um, when we started really picking up and doing tracking of every single piece of information that was coming out, um, whether it's from Metro Police, Capitol Police, um, there was this, this big sweep up of arrests kind of that evening on these kind of um, misdemeanor trespass charges. Um, and then as, as cases started to filter in from DOJ, as we started getting more information, we began collating it, looking into each individual case, what the charges were, the demographic background of each individual, the geographic background, where they traveled from, how they got to the Capitol, who they traveled with, did they commit violence, were they part of a domestic violent extremist group. And in each of those cases, we did our best to rely on a number of sources, both primary and secondary, whether that is charging documents, right, statement of facts, criminal complaint, whether that in some of the cases when there were some motions for pretrial detention or motions for pretrial release, as well as in many of these early instances, especially local news, national news uh, provided a lot of information that we, we wouldn't always get from court records. So I, I would say that generally frames our approach for, for most of these cases so far. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add on to that and say, you know, if you're familiar more broadly with the program on extremism's uh, research products, which I'm sure many people listening to this are, uh, you know, this kind of fits into our broader modus operandi. It's it's how we've sort of approached the problem of extremism in the United States in a lot of different angles before by by looking into specifically the individuals that were charged um, and through those court documents and through our gargantuan PACER budget, trying to get more of a sense of um, from the primary source that comes in the form of court documents uh, about the the factors that are not only driving these individuals towards either participation in one type of extremist movement or another, but then also at the same time uh, trying to get an angle on the policy side of it as well. Um, 
in complement, I think, with a lot of the um, the strategic policy level documents that have been released by the Biden administration, I think one of the other things that's going into our research as well as we look through court documents is trying to get a sense of how investigations are conducted, uh, by which means are the individuals who are alleged to have participated in uh, January 6th, you know, how is the FBI finding them, how do they conduct investigations, uh, and then also how does the prosecutorial process differ uh, with the various types of extremism through court documents uh, that, we, that we do research on at the program on extremism. And I actually had a question on that point. So what unique challenges did you all face when tracking individuals that took place in the, the January 6th um, siege on the Capitol? And I also know that Program on Extremism has done a ton of work on ISIS and the ISIS files and so forth. And what kind of differences did you see between doing research for January 6th versus, say, the ISIS, um, ISIS in America? Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that's really interesting, especially when you compare across those collection processes, when you look at the ISIS in America cases over over this period of five, six, seven years, um, you kind of expect to get a pretty significant amount of information from a lot of these court documents, especially in in cases where they're they're charging material support in cases where there is some kind of violent plot or attempted travel, there's usually a pretty decent standard of information that we can expect to come out of, of court records, right? In terms of whether it's stuff like how they purchased a plane ticket, who they were communicating with online, information that speaks in very granular detail to the ideology of some of those individuals, their motivations, what texts they were reading, who they were in, in communication with either domestically or overseas. And for a pretty decent chunk of these cases, at least at, at present, you don't really get that. Um, for cases like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and some of the Three Percenters where there are these really granular, you know, day by day, in some cases, hour by hour breakdowns of how this conspiracy unfolded, sure, you, you will get decent information there. But for a pretty significant subset of these cases, especially the ones where it's just, you know, an individual who is alleged to have gone to the rally, walked from the ellipse to the Capitol grounds, reached Capitol grounds, walked up the steps to the Capitol, took some photos and left. That's, that's really, you know, a pretty open and shut four or five page misdemeanor trespass case. And so by and large, you're not really going to get that really granular detail of you know, who was that person communicating with online prior to January 6th? What were they posting on Facebook prior to January 6th? You might get some of it in sentencing memorandums here and there from time to time, but in the majority of those cases, you're not getting any kind of detention arguments, either transcripts from court or written memos in support or opposition. And you're, you're not getting nearly the same level of in-depth information that, that we, would, we would get for cases like ICE in America. Yeah, and the other thing too, I think, actually, you know, in fairness, with with specific regard to ISIS in America and some of the research we've done on that, I think methodologically there's a lot of similarities in how we approach approach both of the data sets, just from the standpoint of you know navigating Pacer as it uh, as uh, which is the website that provides um, public access to court documents. 
that website's a gigantic, humongous trash fire of pretty epic proportions. Uh, navigating it is tremendously difficult, but one of the things that really helps in trying to find the cases in the first place uh, is having some sort of standard language or standard charges of offense uh, that you can use that even though the search function on Pacer is completely, um, I guess this is a family show, so I'll stop there. But, um, you know, since the search function is so horrible, one of the things that helps is when there's standardized language or a standardized set of charges uh, that you can use to plug into those search functions. And with both ISIS and America uh, in large part, and then especially with uh, the Capital Siege database, there are those types of terms, you know, the descriptor of January 6th uh, and the events of January 6th that's at the beginning of uh, pretty much every single docket involved um, uh, helps out a lot with that. And then also, you know, the fact that pretty much everybody who's been uh, arrested as part of the January 6th uh, related incident has been alleged to have conducted some uh, sort of trespassing violation in Congress. Being able to search for those specific uh, language callouts and charges uh, is tremendously helpful. And then I think the one other thing that's different uh, or, or, or sort of the same about that data set, but it's been much a much greater factor in terms of January 6th is the amount of public interest that's been drawn to it. Uh, so, you know, the ability to hear about um, a charge through local media sources or other folks that are tracking January 6th that might not have done the same thing for, for ISIS in America uh, is a huge help in terms of being able to find the court documents in the first place. Where I find it very dissimilar in both of those regards is trying to conduct research on court documents in other, let's say, domestic violent extremist movements um, unrelated to January 6th. Uh, like trying to find all the uh, cases of Boogaloo Boys or white supremacists or other folks that have been arrested over the past couple of years uh, is much more difficult than having to do the January 6th stuff just because, you know, there's no standard charge of offense. Uh, you know, they could be arrested for any number of federal offenses from gun charges. Uh, number two, it might not be immediately clear in the court documents that they are a member of a, uh, of a violent extremist group or at least alleged to be. And then number three as well is that those types of cases tend to be under the public radar a little bit more so, uh, and it's incumbent on, I guess, uh, gigantic nerds like us to have to find them in the first place. Whereas I think like with January 6th stuff, there's a whole team across the country of gigantic nerds and other people who are otherwise interested in, in digging out some of these case documents. Let's talk about charges for January 6th. What are some of the most common charges you've seen and also sort of what surprises you when you look at these documents? Yeah, so I think the, the most common ones can be broken up into two probably vaguely similar size buckets. So the, the first one, which we, we, we touched on earlier, is that kind of standard for misdemeanor trespass charges. Um, so that, that's uh, 1752 and then 5104 these two misdemeanor cases um, that have really be, or the misdemeanor charges that have really become the commonplace ones for most of the low-level defendants in these cases. And for some of the other defendants, including ones who are alleged to have gone into congressional offices, alleged to have gone into the Senate chamber or the House chamber, what we've seen is the use of 1512C2, which is obstruction of an official proceeding. Um, now that in itself is actually a pretty unique application of that specific charge, which 
up until this point had had largely been used more around efforts to uh, intimidate witnesses or prevent testimony uh, in in Congress or uh, you know the you know individuals who had interrupted um, Supreme Court hearings or, or things of that nature. And this was really the first time you had seen those charges brought against individuals who had breached the U.S. Capitol with the intent to obstruct the congressional proceeding of that day, which was the goal of which was to count the and certify the electoral votes. Um, there were a number of legal challenges that we saw early on from a, a number of defendants on the application, on the use of that charge, including from Proud Boys defendants, militia defendants to uh, various unaffiliated defendants. And to, to date, I think by and large, we've had six or seven of the DC district court judges actually rule that it is completely applicable. It does fit. Um, but I, I think it is an interesting question when you kind of look at down the road, what kind of charges do and don't fit behavior of this nature in terms of the, the kind of long-term policy questions. And then of course, obviously the, the, the big elephant in the room is the use of the seditious conspiracy charge against Stuart Rhodes and against 10 of his Oath Keepers defendants. And that, that actually charges that those individuals traveled to DC, engaged in the conduct that we had already um, had seen that they had engaged in as the government has alleged for, for about a year now, but had added the new wrinkle that these individuals engaged in this conduct for the explicit conspiratorial intent to prevent the lawful transfer of presidential power. And so that's obviously, you know, I think one of the biggest kind of most, most significant new, new developments that we've seen in the, in the charges so far. Yeah, I don't know if there's there's too much I can add to that, but you, you did ask in terms of if there was anything that surprised me uh, about the nature of the charge or, or surprised John and I. And I think, uh, speaking for myself, I, I'm not really sh sure if I'm surprised about the nature of the charges or the breakdown of charges. Uh, I guess to some degree, I'm surprised that other people are surprised because you have this, I think, sort of general narrative developing uh, in the public and, and in the media, especially that uh, for some reason, people are uh, sort of not being charged to the degree or extent that they could have been charged by the DOJ and that they deserve much harsher punishments for participating in January 6th and people who are kind of surprised in the sentencing outcomes, especially uh, based on that charges. Um, and to that, I think that degree of it doesn't reflect, I think, predominantly what we saw in January 6th, which was uh, a number of folks who, you know, I think may have gone in with some sort of violent intent beforehand, uh, but then another entirely separate group of individuals who, uh, you know, uh, as people described, you know, walked into the Capitol, went around, took pictures, and walked right back out. Uh, I guess I'm surprised in general to see the calls more broadly in the public uh, for, for, for harsher sentences for that second group of folks. Uh, I mean, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but um, I think that's been one thing uh, the lack of sort of nuance in describing uh, what happened at January 6th, especially among uh, the individuals who have been charged so far, uh, is something that I've been, uh, I guess, a little taken aback by in terms of how much of a discrepancy there is between that narrative uh, and the research that we're doing in terms of uh, what the charges actually end up being uh, and the reason why those charges are put in. Going back to the seditious conspiracy charges, 
how common are those in extremism cases and also why use sedition as a charge? Yeah, um, very, very uncommon uh, is the is the short answer. Um, it had been brought unsuccessfully uh, against a militia a number of years ago. Uh, there are uh, a very small handful of cases, mostly in the early 2000s, involving the use of it. But I think by and large, what we saw, especially in the jihadist side of, you know, FTO style counterterrorism operations is that material support largely offered a pretty open and shut black and white uh, application of the legal statutes to, to get the end result that, that I think DOJ, FBI were, were looking for in those cases. Um, so again, very, very uncommon. I think that, again, what it, what it really does speak to is this attempt by DOJ to make the connection between what happened at the Capitol that day and I think broader anti-democratic efforts that were kind of rife within the Stop the Steal movement up to that point in that broader conspiracy. And I think that, again, it's a relatively untested, untried charge. And again, I think there's a good reason you, you don't often see it because it, it, it does have a fairly high burden of evidence. But I think one of the core differences to keep in mind here is that the, the allegations set forth against Stuart Rhodes and, and the 10 co-defendants, for the vast majority of those individuals, there is a decent backlog of evidence that has been collected, uh, allegations that have been set forth by the government across six superseding indictments against, you know, eight of those, or nine of those 11 defendants to date, um, who, who had been previously arrested, previously charged with various conspiracies, including conspiracy to obstruct the official proceeding. Um, and so, yeah, I think, again, relatively untested, but I think uh, a, a higher evidentiary set of, of tools than, than previously used. Yeah, once again, John has said pretty much uh, all of what I was probably going to say in response to that question. I think the, the one other thing to add is that the revealing of these seditious conspiracy charges sort of underlines, I think, uh, a big lesson that we've had to learn so far about uh, conducting this research on January 6th in general, which is that, you know, as the court processes go on for each of these defendants, uh, you know, strategically so, the Department of Justice chooses to either, you know, withhold or present evidence at various points during the uh, court proceedings. I remember right before the sort of seditious conspiracy charge against Rhodes and um, the Oath Keepers were launched, um, you know, we were going back and forth and trying to think about why in the initial stage of the indictment uh, uh, um, and com criminal complaints against those uh, Oath Keepers, uh, there were more allegations that the DOJ had included in the criminal complaints, uh, essentially elaborating that they had intended prior to January 6th uh, to stop uh, the, the certification of the election through the use of force. Uh, that those same allegations were then absent from later sorts of superseding indictments and other sorts of uh, information that was in court documents in each of their cases. Uh, and, you know, as we were drafting the report, we were sort of going through this process of wondering, uh, you know, why is that the case? You know, why would you come out strong and then pull back some of the evidence? And then, you know, uh, of course, right around the time of the report, uh, this uh, new seditious conspiracy uh, charge, which contained a lot of the elements of the original language in uh, the initial criminal complaints and indictments against the Oath Keepers, was brought back to the fore as well. Uh, you know, so it just goes to show, I think, through the court 
uh, document uh, through the, the the process of uh, you know trying and prosecuting these individuals. Um, there's a lot of shifts in information that um, has been, I think, equally as difficult for us in terms of keeping up with the new cases. You know, I think nowadays our work has sort of declined a little bit because the frequency to which new cases are coming out has sort of uh, declined by a, a relatively substantial degree where we were processed, I think, at the peak of it, uh, something like 10 to 15 cases a day at some points in time. And, uh, you know, now there might be that number in, in a month or a couple of months. Um, but now it's just trying to get a hold, uh, and we are to some extent drinking through a straw on all the new information that's coming out about all 700 plus cases, um, closer to 800 now, uh, you know, all the new information that's coming out as a result of their cases going through the, the, the trial process. When thinking back on the people that participated in January 6th, how do we categorize these participants um, in the sense of, I know you talk about in the report, um, planning coordinated on spontaneous involvement. So let's talk about that somewhat. Yeah, I think it is really interesting to look at the cross-section of, of individuals that are alleged to have taken part. Um, as, we, as we hit on in the report, there are these kind of overlapping circles of individuals who have very, very little clear affiliation, if any, with any known named domestic violent extremist groups. And I think that makes up by far and away the, the, the biggest set of individuals, those who don't have any affiliation to Oath Keepers, to Proud Boys, to Three Percenters. Um, and even within that breakdown, as, as we hit on in the, in the report, there are a not insignificant number of those individuals who were the ones who were allegedly most willing to engage in egregious acts of violence on that day. Um, as we as we kind of dive into, there's that, there's that category of spontaneous cells, these individuals that in these specific flashpoints, despite whether they traveled alone or traveled in, in small groups and you know one or two individuals stayed on Capitol grounds while the individual who was charged went to the front of the line. These were individuals who in these specific moments, in these specific flashpoints, were were the ones who were willing to engage in in this, you know, in in some instances, allegations of really medieval violence. And I think that when you take that alongside um, both the kind of broader mob of that day, you know, the the, the body of anywhere from I've seen 10, 15, 20,000, you know, thrown around in terms of numbers of individuals either on restricted capital grounds or in the immediate vicinity of the U.S. Capitol. And then you pair that alongside what is alleged to have been at least three so far potentially overlapping conspiracies between members of the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the Three Percenters, who potentially may have had some degree of coordination between them. I think we're still waiting on a lot of that information. But at the very least, what you see is allegations of intent by, at minimum, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, based on what the government has set forth, that we're willing to use, again, what, what they have always called the normies, as the kind of um, tip of that spear to allow individuals from these groups to breach the Capitol and attempt to obstruct the proceeding, or in the case of the Oath Keepers, to prevent that lawful transfer of power. And so I think when, when you put all of those distinct pieces of it 
together, you can really see how the events unfolded the way they did. Yeah, and I think a lion's share of the attention elsewhere has been sort of focused on the two categories that are on opposite sides of the spectrum in terms of um, in terms of organization, in terms of connections to violent extremist groups. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of focus on the, as John said, the Oath Keepers, Proud Boys conspiracies, and there have been a lot of focus on sort of, uh, I guess, some of the random faces in the crowd, the the individuals who um, we call inspired believers who uh, sort of just show up at the Capitol, uh, might do something ridiculous as they're inside Capitol grounds and then turn around and leave. Uh, but where I think a lot of our report focuses on, especially in terms of what's most notable for future sort of threats of political violence emanating from January 6th, uh, is the two categories in the middle, and especially um, the category that we term spontaneous clusters, who, uh, as John said, were, were folks that may have traveled by themselves, may have traveled with others uh, to the Capitol, uh, didn't really know what was going to happen, and then in the midst of everything sort of happening, the militant networks breaching uh, the front lines, uh, and then just the general atmosphere that was taking place on that day uh, decided to conduct violence. And in some cases, uh, again, the most egregious acts of violence against uh, police um, and uh, other folks as well, at least uh, alleged by the DOJ. Uh, and it's this kind of environment that I think is is most connected to sort of what the federal government sees its threat assessment of domestic violent extremist groups uh, as being nowadays, because it says the most sort of lethal threats that will emanate from these various movements are individuals who, despite lacking ties to any type of organization or movement in a formalized membership sense, uh, are inspired by uh, sort of flashpoints to engage in violence. And that's exactly what this spontaneous cluster is. Uh, you know, it's the individuals who, you know, may not have been card-carrying Oath Keepers, may not have been card-carrying Proud Boys, uh, but now that the left were, were swept up in some of uh, the violence that happened on January 6th and decided themselves, uh, either by themselves or in coordination with others, to conduct violent attacks uh, against people that were at the Capitol as well. So it mirrors sort of that sense that you get in some of the assessments from the ODNI and uh, the intelligence community more broadly about what sort of the biggest threats they see from domestic violent extremism today. The second thing is just sort of a academic or a methodological point that this is where we, I think, in terms of the future for another January 6th type event, uh, you know, like either at a state capital or at the US capital or, or something where uh, essentially the perpetrators uh, engage in a similar pattern of activities as they do to January 6th. Um, it's this kind of spontaneous cluster category that's uh, go, is sort of like the make or break in terms of whether it's a First Amendment protected activity that, you know, maybe some folks are saying some pretty awful or horrific things during uh, because they're they're part of extremist groups or whether it tips over the um, over the horizon sort of into this uh, sort of violent extremist attack, uh, as you saw at the Capitol on January 6th. So it's a linchpin for it in that regard. And I think applying and understanding this group of people requires more academic approaches outside of our narrow spectrum of uh, how we think about terrorist groups or organizations uh, and more sort of communication and more reading into, uh, you know, sociolog uh, sociological and anthropological treatments about mob violence uh, and the potential for, uh, you know, violence within large crowds to lead into uh, very significant sort of uh, incidents when also having a nexus to 
uh, sort of terrorist groups that are also intending to commit violence. And when thinking about these spontaneous clusters, can we almost equate some of the actors involved in them to, say, leaderless resistance or lone actors? Those are terms we see within the broader extremism, terrorism literature. Yeah, I'll I think- jump in real quick, John. Uh, sure. Sorry. Um, I think it's it's somewhat different. Uh, you know, I think first off, not all of the spontaneous clusters are lone actors. Uh, you know, the spontaneous clusters are, are clusters. They're joining together with other folks. And even though it's not planned beforehand, a lot of the individuals that are present at the Capitol are collaborating spontaneously with other folks to conduct violence. Um, uh, you know, there's a good example of that, I think, on one of the the, the indictments charges about uh, 10 or 11 different people from multiple states who didn't know each other prior to January 6th. Uh, with assaulting Capitol Police officers in a conspiracy, despite the fact that there's no evidence that any of them knew each other prior to January 6th. So I think it's somewhat different than what you see in a lot of the the lone actor literature, even though there are some similarities in terms of the potential for broader violent extremist narrative movements, et cetera, to inspire individual violent actors to conduct it. They're just not conducting that violence uh, by themselves uh, in all cases. Uh, it's in conjunction in many cases with 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 some other folks as well. Yeah, I, I would just agree with everything Bennett said. He hit it on the head. And I, yeah, I, I would say it it fits as two, not not maybe not equally significant, but but certainly concerning issue areas to look forward as you try and understand, from, even from a policy perspective, um, how domestic law enforcement, um, you know, DOJ, FBI, NCTC can wrap their heads around the strategic level understanding of what is less of group centric thinking and more of some of these movements that we've seen emerge in in recent years. So I want to talk a bit about the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Of course, those groups come up a lot in the press and the cases recently. And let's talk about their different engagement within the siege insurrection, whatever you want to call it. So what roles did they play? And um, let's also talk about the sentencing they have been given. Yeah. So firstly, I I would just say, yeah, in in terms of their alleged roles in the siege, I think the the obviously important bit is that there's still a lot we don't know. Um, But from what has been set forth by the government, I would say that the allegations suggest that the Proud Boys, at least some of the Proud Boys leadership, played a more active role in some of the kind of early flashpoints at specific areas, whether it's barricades or uh, with Dominic Pozzola allegedly smashing in a window with a riot shield in, in one of the first actual breaches of the building itself. Whereas, again, based on what the government has set forth, you know, Capitol grounds were breached around 115 is is the kind of first incident at the bike rack, which has numerous Proud Boys in that vicinity, um, at least based on what the government has, has argued so far. Whereas, I think when you look at the allegations against the Oath Keepers, while some of them may have been present on Capitol grounds by 130, 145, Many of the activities of Stack One, 
and then stack two aren't alleged to happen until 2.45 p.m., 3.15 p.m. around the East Rotunda doors. Now, again, that, that's still obviously a significant breach at that point, but it is, I think, a little bit different when you look at the, the immediacy of some of their action in terms of the, the initial breaches of both Capitol grounds and of the building itself. I think that, that there have been suggestions, especially when you look at the the activity and the role of individuals like Alex Jones and, and his InfoWar employee, Jonathan Troyer, who has been charged in terms of moving individuals from the crowd into specific areas that are then shortly afterwards breached by members of the Oath Keepers. I think that does raise several interesting questions about kind of how some of this coordination may have taken place. But by and large, I would say that there's still a lot we don't know. Um, and very similarly, in, in terms of sentencing, just quickly, um, we haven't had any sentencing for either of those groups yet. We've had one proud boy, Matthew Green, who is a co-defendant of Dominic Pozzola, plead guilty. Um, and we've had uh, four conspiracy oath keepers as well as Jonathan Schaefer uh, plead guilty so far to various charges. Uh, the four conspiracy ones uh, pleaded guilty to the conspiracy to obstruct the proceeding, but none of them have been sentenced. And I think the expectation is that at least some of them will be expected to cooperate or potentially testify um, at the upcoming Oath Keepers trial. So I wouldn't expect to see um, the final kind of calculation for their sentencing take place until the conclusion of that. Yeah, this is the, uh, I guess, the benefit and the drawback of uh, having to go after John Lewis in a Proud Boys Earth Keepers questions, because I don't have anything to add to that. <laughs> I love it. Yes, John knows his stuff for sure when it comes to all the charges and everything. We always say that. <laughs> um, I was wondering, do we see with charges between Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, do we see stronger charges uh, more on one group versus the other? I guess, John, probably you're the one that's going to answer this again. Yeah, um, they're fairly similar at this point. I think the, the core difference in how it had been, at least originally how it had been charged is with the Oath Keepers initially, you kind of just had um, one kind of stack indictment where I think initially it was like 16 co-defendants, then it was superseded to add 17, then it was superseded a second, third, fourth, fifth, and eventually sixth time to, I think it ended up adding at one point, maybe up to 18 co-defendants. Several of them, the ones who pleaded, were then removed from that, that indictment, but they're, they're, the core information that they've been accused of remained. Um, whereas with the Proud Boys, it was kind of divided across a number of different, but again, very similar conspiracies. There were just specific clusters of Proud Boys one, from Can one group from Kansas City, uh, two individuals who were kind of like Proud Boys media members, um, the Proud Boys leadership, and the group with uh, Dominic Pozzola, Matthew Green, who, again, are not alleged to have coordinated explicitly together on that day, while the Oath Keepers did, but based on the indictments, the allegation is that the mobilization of the Proud Boys was in some way organized, coordinated by some, some degree of Proud Boys leadership, whether that's Enrique Tarrio, 
or Ethan Nordine, Joe Biggs, Zach Rell, um, who are charged in that leadership indictment. Um, but I, generally, I would say at present, it's very similar charges. And I think the one wrinkle that you see in, in both of them in terms of potential sentencing is the use of a terrorism sentencing enhancement. And so in both cases, not for all the Proud Boys, I think right now it's just the ones who are charged alongside Pizzola, including Matthew Green, um, and a number of the Oath Keepers who are all charged as co-conspirators at this point. Um, a significant number of them face destruction of government property charges under 18 U.S.C. 1361. And that is, I think, of all the charges that have been brought forth to date against anyone at the or for anyone for their alleged conduct on the day, um, destruction of government property is the only charge that I'm aware of that has been used that could can carry with it a sentencing enhancement uh, for um, enabling a federal crime of terrorism. And so what, what you actually saw in the Matthew Green plea agreement was he pleaded guilty to the obstruction to the conspiracy charge, which carries a maximum 20-year sentence, although he probably won't get anywhere close to that. But he did so in the plea agreement to avoid pleading guilty to the destruction of government property charge, to avoid that potential uh, terrorism enhancement. And so it would not be all that surprising to see that be a similar kind of approach as we get closer to some of the trials for the Oath Keepers in the spring and summer, and then the, the various Proud Boys um, clusters as they work their way through the system. I would only add that I think, in general, what what John just described, um, those allegations are true. It it sort of mirrors what we know about the way that both organizations are governed. Uh, you know, sort of with the Oath Keepers, uh, you have the DOJ charging a group of them, uh, essentially all in conjunction, all in a conspiracy with one another that goes all the way up to the top of the organization. Uh, because they all engaged in coordination for the same sorts of operations and activities on January 6th, whereas the charges against Proud Boys are more disparate just because uh, they're grouped into conspiracies, but they're all based on localized cells. So you have, you know, for instance, the Kansas folks, the upstate New York folks, uh, the Philly folks, and onwards and onwards. Uh, and that mirrors sort of, uh, on one hand, the sort of decentralized to the local level nature of the way that the Proud Boys organization, or at least how we know it, makes most of the decisions they do about operations, and the way the Oath Keepers make decisions about significant operations as well. When thinking about domestic violent extremism broadly, how has January 6th changed the architecture of how we A, look at it, and B, how we investigate and prosecute charges of domestic violent extremism in the U.S.? When I say domestic, of course, I mean United States. Yeah, so I think the the first point is that we've seen a, a not insignificant number of investigations be born out of January 6th related conduct. And especially in, in the weeks following January 6th, you saw a number of cases. Um, there's a couple that come to mind with a couple of three percenters in California, uh, a Proud Boy affiliate in New York, who made some type of either interstate threats or were posting about January 6th, um, or, you know, uh, in some cases, uh, inciting violence. And you, you had investigations stem out of that conduct, even though they were not present at on restricted capital grounds. Um, 
I would say in terms of both the the response and the threat side, I think the, the one thing that we touch upon in, in the report a decent amount is this continued movement away from these kind of individual hierarchical groups. And I think when you look at, again, I think it's always important to note, as, as Sam Jackson will always say, that um, the mobilization patterns of the Oath Keepers are quite different than those of the Proud Boys. But even when you look at, you know, 2020 compared to 2021, you, you do see a downturn in Oath Keepers mobilization, which is, of course, to be expected given the, the, the federal pressure on that group. Whereas, whereas the Proud Boys, which I think we've seen is a little less top-down directionally and a little more, a little less dependent on the, the kind of firm grasp of um, a leader. You, you've seen a lot more freedom for those individual chapters to mobilize to specific locales, especially in Portland, especially in, in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and I think really what you've seen is January 6th as an indication of why like it's really difficult to to accurately you know counter and engage with domestic violent extremism efforts because even as we saw on on January 6th in the lead up there's this kind of really really fine line that i think it would at least appear based on public information that a lot of the federal agencies are not entirely clear on where exactly that line sits and i think that when you look at some of the testimony that, that's come out post January 6th, there was just this kind of acceptance that there was a lot of chatter, you know, in air quotes, online in the buildup to January 6th, but that the assessments were generally that most of it fell on that side of First Amendment protected speech. And so when you have a, you know, domestic counterterrorism apparatus that in some degree is kind of, you know, being delicate in terms of attempting to or potentially crossing that line. And then you have, um, you know, social media companies that in many cases may not be best positioned with the understanding for what exactly they're looking at and where that exact line is in each of their specific instances of incitement to violence versus political speech as that line continues to be increasingly blurred. Um, I think it, it really does illustrate how significant of, of a problem this is. Yeah, I think another thing, too, to point out as well is that I think in the aftermath of January 6th, um, you know, there was an attempt, I think, or a, a relatively major effect to sort of correct the course for the federal government in terms of its uh, domestic counterterrorism policy. Uh, but it, it it's operating in a way that's pretty similar to how we've conducted counterterrorism in the United States uh, for a long time, really, which is this very kind of group-focused approach to the threat. Uh, when that, uh, as Jordan said, is is no longer sort of the nature of the kind of threats that we face today. Uh, I mean, I think it's not just a, a problem for policymakers or for law enforcement as well. Uh, you know, we all like to put uh, individuals and in, especially individual actors into these buckets based off their ideology, their group membership, et cetera, et cetera. And I think in the aftermath of January 6th, the main sort of approach uh, was to try to scoop up all the different groups who were known to have participated in January 6th and sort of apply federal pressure on them, both in conjunction with the January 6th related investigation, uh, as well as more broadly. So there were other groups that, uh, you know, are more connected to ideas that were present at January 6th, uh, but weren't actually 
entirely there in any sort of like major way. Like for I'm thinking about the uh, individuals who ascribe to the Boogaloo ideology uh, and a number of recent charges tar charging those folks. Uh, but I think again, the the overall idea that the government has in a lot of this pressure is to try to pick like the five or six groups that were present or involved at January 6th and take the groups out, uh, which is, you know, in some ways effective insofar as that with certain groups that that really diminishes their ability, at least in the short term, uh, to operate at the same level they were before. And the Oath Keepers are the prime example of that. But for a lot of them, they've either found a way as a group or as an organization to rely on a type of leadership and hierarchical control that does not, um, that is not easily targeted by these types of government approaches, like the Proud Boys, for instance. Uh, you know, if the FBI arrests all the Proud Boys in Philadelphia because they were all at January 6th, the Proud Boys chapter in Oregon can still function due to the way that the organization is founded. Whereas for the Oath Keepers, if they take down Stuart Road, suddenly the entire leadership at the top is in sort of a scramble to try to maintain uh, a hold on the organization as a whole. And it makes it a lot easier for the FBI to disrupt that type of activity. But that's just, I think, two examples where, you know, you have even some discrepancy with groups, but that's not even getting to the fact that, um, you know, a lot of the the groups that are the, the, the sort of aspects of um, networks that pose the largest threat today are, are, are exactly that. Um, even if you get rid of a particular group, the movement will survive. Uh, and even if the Oath Keepers are dealt a completely, uh, or if they're dealt a death blow as a result of this January 6th investigation, uh, I mean, obviously the militia movement is gonna survive. It's been metastasized by the narratives that happened at January 6th and what is a perceived success of that day as well. Uh, and then that's not even getting to a lot of the other domestic violent extremist movements, uh, like, for instance, racially and ethnically motivated violent extremist movements that didn't have uh, sort of a large hand to play in the Capitol. So I think it's uh, effective in the sense and what we've largely seen during 2021 was a short term effective strategy by the federal government to counter domestic terrorism insofar that after uh, January 6th, um, after January 6th, 2021, throughout the entire course of 2021, there was never uh, another large scale attack committed by any of the domestic violent extremist groups in that category. But in the long run, uh, these movements are also reacting to the federal pressure as well and figuring out new ways of mobilizing followers and, uh, uh, you know, generating the potential for, um, uh, for violent attacks and other sorts of activities as well. And for our listeners' sake, when we talk about domestic violent extremism, I know you've mentioned, you know, we have specific groups, but then there's also this amalgamation of ideas and ideologies and so forth, um, leanings. What are we talking about, really? Like, how do we even define domestic violent extremism? I know that's a big question. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice, easy question. Um, yeah, I think a good starting point are some of the the recent products that have come out of the the intelligence community. I'm, I'm thinking of the recent ODNI assessments that, that, that kind of um, take a decent crack at attempting to bucket in some coherent way, um, you know, the, the, the variations between racially and ethnically motivated violent extremism, like Bennett said, against potentially anti-government, anti-authority movements. Um, but then, you know, I think anytime you try and get more granular than, than that, it kind of gets a little bit of 
a gray area. Um, again, mostly because if, if you look at that kind of breakdown, uh, you know, you then have a kind of category that's basically referred to as, you know, all other forms of domestic violent extremism, which includes, you know, any kind of mixed or gray area ideology, personal grievances, which, you know, I think it's it's pretty clear are, are a not insignificant part of most radicalization processes, uh, you know, not in not just domestic violent extremism, but but in, in most forms of extremism. Um, and then, you know, this kind of challenge of, as I said earlier, this this kind of needing to show your work and having a coherent strategic understanding of what each distinct piece of these movements are and why that matters. And I think even when you kind of look at you know, some of the research that's come out, it's it's very evident why, right? Like, you know, January 6th aside with the coordination between Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, you know, if you if you take a, um, you know, kind of just a, a cross-section of mobilization and tactics and targets by, you know, let's just say Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Boogaloo, neo-fascists over the past five, six years, you're going to get four nearly you know, completely different sets of sets of results. You're, you're going to have, you know, Boogaloo that was largely mobilizing to protests in 2020, um, you know, on arguably on, on both sides of, of the issue. Um, most of them largely galvanized by a desire to engage in violence against law enforcement. You have, you know, Adam Waffen and the base, which, which we know were really engaging in targeting minorities, journalists, infrastructure, and then you have, you know, crowd boys who were largely willing to engage in that kind of street violence and then Oath Keepers who more or less were content to kind of serve as that kind of like, you know, physical manifestation of, um, you know, the, the Patriot militia movement in these kind of shows of force. And, you know, I think like, you know, grouping two or three of those under one bucket just because, you know, they have a vaguely similar ideology that you can kind of put into one of these big overarching categories, you know, is is useful for the sake of creating a graphic. But I think that when you're really trying to evidence a coherent understanding of what motivates some of these movements, what, you know, what ideas, what narratives inspire mobilization, I think that's incredibly important. And then again, to get really specific with the Jan 6 example here, um, you know, you had mobilization to DC in November and in December of, of 2020 that, you know, again, in, included Proud Boys, I think potentially includes some Oath Keepers as well, some QAnon adherents and Stop the Steal people. Um, but then, you know, I, I think it, it seems as though based on, again, what has been put forth publicly, a lot of the kind of intelligence leading up January 6th, seemingly expected similar kind of turnout, similar kind of violence that evening, um, but certainly not some kind of, you know, coordinated, you know, group mob action that is alleged to have taken place on January 6th. But if you look at, you know, it, you know, it, I don't think you need to be, uh, a, you know, a veteran extremism researcher to, you know, look at what was being posted on, not, not even in signal chats or in, in encrypted platforms or on Telegram, but in very public spaces, um, you know, a vast majority of individuals who traveled to January to the DC on, on January 6th were very, very public in their 
statements that this is our last chance. Like this is, this is our moment to make history. This is the, you know, the last opportunity we have, this is when we have to make it count. And, you know, they, you know, they, they viewed all other legal and political options as having been exhausted. And, and they thought that this was their moment to, to be on the right side of history. And so again, like even, even just that level of understanding being used to assess, to analyze, and to, to craft co- coherent responses to distinct pieces of the DVE threat is, is incredibly important. Yeah, and I'll, I'll speak more broadly. John touched on a lot of the implications for, uh, you know, our definition of domestic violent extremism, or at least the intelligence community's definition of domestic violent extremism, and what it meant for January 6th. But just more broadly, in terms of the, the, the DVE threat in the United States encountering it, uh, I think, you know, all of us, whether it's policymakers, researchers, academia, are doing ourselves a, a pretty severe disservice Um, if we're treating the buckets under which we assign different domestic violent extremist organization movements as groups as anything else than just like very loose ideological buckets. They're helpful in a sense, but they're not rigid uh, sort of ways of classifying groups that make them mutually exclusive. Um, And the two problems that I think we have that, I think everyone knows this is a messy space. Everybody knows that there's overlap among various types of domestic violent extremist groups. And as well, I should mention between domestic violent extremist groups and uh, homegrown violent extremism or international terrorism as well. But uh, the two biggest issues is that, you know, you start off and when you're looking at organizations or groups of organizations and you move down the levels of analysis to individual people, the categories become less and less clear because uh, individuals, more so than any group of individuals, are more likely to ascribe to um, their own sort of unique blend of narratives uh, that happened as well. And, uh, you know, I'm only saying this because I guess like some people have categorized this phenomenon under different terms. I'm just saying this to elicit a massive eye roll from from John and everyone else. But, you know, this is what the FBI talks about when they talk about salad bar extremism as well. Uh, You know, it's this idea that nowadays the individuals, especially the ones who are most prone to violence, are sort of self-selecting based off the narratives that make sense for them um, in terms of, uh, you know, what justifies their own violence, what justifies their own participation in violent extremist uh, uh, activities and motivations. And from that standpoint, and then also not just manifested at that level, but also at a group level at some points in times, you have this idea that extremists are drawing on multiple narratives to sort of solidify their point in action as well. So I think one of the big sort of assessment failures prior to January 6th was this idea that, um, you know, different categories, even within this sort of uh, major bucket of anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremism, uh, you know, essentially that they would never join up with each other to conduct a similar uh, scope of activity. Uh, you know, like uh, you have Oath Keepers over here, you have Proud Boys over there, you have three percenters on this other place, and never the twain shall meet because they're engaged in different activities, they have a different ideology, so on and so forth. That's an example of how, you know, codifying these buckets into strict, rigid sort of uh, classifications between groups can lead to faulty assessments because, as we know, on January 6th, but not only at January 6th, at other events that had occurred uh, across the country in the lead up to January 6th. Uh, including but not limited to uh, some of the protests against uh, COVID-19 restrictions in Michigan, Um, uh, even going back to the Unite the Right rally at Charlottesville, we do know that these groups are more ideologically fluid than it makes sense for our categories, Uh, you know, and I think that's something is, uh, you know, from the research side of things also, 
are always trying to be cognizant of because, you know, as a basis for classification, it's better to have some of these categories like racially and ethnically motivated violent extremism or anti-government, anti-authority violent extremism, because not having them just makes it more of a mess. Uh, but we have to recognize, I think, some of the limits of these own categories for, for assessment and analysis and realize that uh, groups and especially individuals do often uh, stand right at the crux of where two categories intersect with one another. Uh, and maybe some of the frequent, you know, intersections between those categories are reasons to question our analysis in the own sense. You know, if we're seeing a group that we think is anti-government, anti-authority, um, but, you know, they're consistently and more frequently engaging with, uh, you know, white supremacist literature, maybe it's a time to rethink that category because you can absolutely be both at the same time, you know, uh, to go back again to elicit another eye roll from John. Uh, you know, from this salad bar analogy, like this is the the sense where you go to the salad bar and, uh, you know, everybody wants blue cheese dressing because it's objectively better than ranch dressing. You know, if every single person that goes to the salad bar is picking up one kind of dressing or uh, one kind of salad topping, you know, myself personally, I'm preferential for, uh, you know, shredded carrots. You know, that's the, the situation where we get in, where, you know, you start to question whether um, the categories as we've devised them are adequate to explain the uh, the breadth and depth of movements that we have nowadays in, in 21st century domestic violent extremism. Well, I will counter you on blue cheese better, being better than ranch, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> um, on the other side of it, so moving away from law enforcement, what are the political challenges of pursuing domestic violent extremism? I know John mentioned the First Amendment, of course, has huge implications for lots of things. So let's talk about that slightly. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of my one of my favorite hobby horses. So um, I don't know how much time you have. But um, really, I think it, it comes down to what has been a fundamental challenge in, in the US for, for quite some time is knowing where that line is and having kind of a, a common agreement between, um, you know, Congress, law enforcement, social media companies of what goes on the right side of that line and what goes on the wrong side of that line and doing so in a way that is um, obviously conscious of First Amendment, of civil rights, of civil liberties, um, but also acknowledges the nature of the threat. And I think that, you know, one thing that has been evident over, over the past, you know, 10 or so years is that most of the discussions on that topic, again, fell not necessarily into the right assessment of what that threat is and how best to counter it. And so what you saw in a, you know, not insignificant number of instances is an over-focusing on specific pieces of that threat, again, whether foreign or domestic, that didn't necessarily track with what some of the most significant parts of that threat actually were in reality. And so again, when you look at, even over the past five, six years, the continued evolution of groups like Proud Boys, like Oath Keepers, the, the, these purely domestic groups that really toe that line between, you know, political violence on, on the one hand and aggressive street violence, um, you know, a, a embrace of authoritarianism on, on the other. 
And I think that it's it's a problem that worked itself all the way through January 6th with many spaces not quite knowing how best to handle it. Now, post-January 6th, you saw um, you know, Canada prescribe Proud Boys um, on, on their list of, of banned terrorist organizations, um, along with you know, Adam Alton Division, I believe James Mason um, and, and others. But in the US, I think it's still a really kind of thorny question, right? Like we have designated one foreign white supremacist group the Russian imperial movement, not, not as a foreign terrorist organization, but as a specially designated global terrorist. And you know that does not carry with it material support penalties like, like we have for any of the FTOs that, that um, you know, we're all familiar with, Hezbollah, Hamas, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. Um, and you know, I think there's, cert- there, there's certainly a, a question to be raised of what the efficacy of that designation even, even really was at this point. Um, but I think that as you look at the the growth of white supremacy, of anti-government extremism, um, and you know, while I obviously will not um, you know discuss the salad bar uh, ideology, um, some some of the more tricky movements to bucket, whether it's Boogaloo, whether it's you know even stuff like QAnon, right? Um, spaces that kind of defy you know, a, a clear, concise explanation for exactly what they are, exactly where the lines are in their movements and their ideology that, that make it difficult. You know, we saw Facebook take action against a Boogaloo movement, um, little, uh, a, a small network of them that was promoting violence in summer 2020. Uh, we saw them take action against um, QAnon, uh, I think a, a little bit later in that year. But you know, a lot of the actions that we've seen, whether it's from the tech companies, whether it's from law enforcement, and I think in, in this kind of vacuum that has been, um, you know, the congressional side, um, it's it's been, if anything, you know, too little, too late and, and a bit belated. And so, again, I think there's always the balancing act you have to have in terms of, you know, enacting new authorities, right? Obviously, there is no real mechanism through which to designate purely domestic groups and, and there probably should not be. Um, but even, you know, what, you know, people smarter than myself, thankfully, like Mary McCord have argued for, which is a domestic terrorism statute, which would basically take existing uh, criminal statutes that we have codified as terrorism in U.S. code when it applies to, to transnational activities or activities in support of uh, the Islamic State and then make them applicable for acts of domestic terrorism, right? So individuals who engage in that conduct in the name of, of a white ethno state instead. Yeah, I've seen a number of sort of proposals, I think for, you know, essentially applying some new form of prosecution, either through reinterpretations of various statutes that are already on the record, or creating new ones that are modeled off existing statutes for international terrorism. I think to some degree, a lot of that debate is a red herring, especially in the United States, because I think even assuming the best form of that proposed law, um, showing, I mean, John talked about that a little bit, but I mean, I think there's some proposals out there that are truly just like completely ineffective and bad, but I think notwithstanding any other sorts of um, uh, issues in sort of developing 
a stronger prosecutorial approach to domestic terrorism. It's clear, I think, nowadays that a lot of the the issues will also require a stronger response from non-governmental entities as well, or at least provide some alternative to addressing the policy problem outside the space of uh, you know, prosecution, which has been sort of the space that we've learned to uh, approach domestic terrorism and, and terrorism in the United States writ large um, for a long time now, but especially after, after September 11th. Uh, and now there's renewed calls for it after January 6th. Uh, there are limits to prosecution. I don't deny that, you know, some folks, I think that's the best sort of situation, but it only addresses, I think, individuals who are already engaging in these types of overt acts in terms of uh, violent extremism and where we're, where we've completely dropped the ball over the past 20 years is having any sorts of approaches uh, sort of either led by the federal government or led by local communities to address sort of the drivers of uh, violent extremism in general, uh, particularly with regard to um, particularly with regard to to, to non-jihadist terrorism as well. Uh, you know, that's the responsibility of uh, local authorities outside of the federal government. It's the responsibility of local communities. It's the responsibility of uh, private industry and tech companies. Uh, develop their own policies in that regard, but anything they come up with that's effective will be more effective in reducing the overall threat from uh, domestic terrorism to the United States nowadays than a lot of what the federal government can do just because of the fact that terrorist groups have adopted their strategies, particularly uh, to make certain types of efforts uh, essentially unprosecutable. Uh, you know, they've learned a lot, I think, from the past 20 years of being put up against increased government pressure as well and adapted their tactics, especially when it comes to attacks in a way that they know stands right on that line between First Amendment protected activity uh, and other sorts of protected activity and making the planning stages for, um, you know, conducting violent attacks and other types of activities as well that makes them uniquely hard to prosecute in, in this day and age. And, you know, quite frankly, trying to change our prosecutorial statutes around uh, to address some of the ways that they've made these adaptations uh, leads leads us down a slippery slope to a place that we really don't want to be. We've been there in our nation's history, I think, uh, before. You know, you, you'd you'd have to look back uh, as uh, borrowing here from um, the DOJ's domestic terrorism counsel, Tom Brzezowski, who always brings up the example of uh, you know the Church Committee uh, in the 70s and, and 80s after after COINTELPRO. Uh, as, as a key example of why the Department of Justice uh, in particular is especially reluctant to go back to a time where they're forming things like uh, lists of domestic terrorist organizations uh, and prosecuting uh, sort of domestic extremism as a standalone crime uh, in and of itself, or even uh, undertaking larger scope of investigative activity against domestic extremists as well, uh, as well as some of the post 9-11 cases. But uh, my point is that you know, the, the path forward on this in terms of more adequately uh, contributing, it can be taken up to some degree by the federal government, but it's also incumbent, I think, uh, because we're dealing here less with an issue of terrorism and more of uh, extremism and uh, its violent form, uh, that more of the onus, I think, is on, uh, you know, non-governmental organizations uh, in, in dealing with the domestic terrorism problem in the U.S., so to bring this discussion to a close, because there's so much to cover, and I do recommend listeners read the actual report, which we'll attach with the recording of the show. But to sort of wrap up, I wanted to give both you, both of you, excuse me, um, a moment to maybe touch on something that we haven't touched on, or if you have 
a thought that you really want to get out there based on this really in-depth research that you've done. So keeping with the format that we have, why don't we let John go first and then we'll hand it over to you, Bennett. Yeah, um, I think we've obviously covered uh, a lot of the the really fun nitty gritty stuff that I think Ben and myself have both spent way too much time looking at uh, over the past year and change. Um, I think there's still an immense amount of information that hasn't really come out to date. I think one of the things I think um, I mentioned this with with Matt on our on our last loopcast, but especially as you look at kind of as the interest in January 6th, especially in local spaces, has kind of waxed and waned a bit. And as we kind of talk about this gap in court records as it relates to some of the misdemeanor cases, I think there's still an immense amount that we don't know, right? Like I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I think POE probably has the most in-depth, detailed set of, of internal data sets and variables for nearly everything you could think of for, for all 736 cases uh, sitting here right now. Um, and th- there's still massive gaps in, in what we know. And I think that, again, part of that just comes with, you know, being a leader in the space. But um, a lot of the, the really good stuff that had come out, especially early, uh, both in terms of um, information on defendants and their ideologies, you know, when you look at the, the reporting by individuals like uh, Zoe Tillman, uh, Ryan Riley, Marcy Wheeler, um, you know, individuals who, who were covering this day in, day out, they had picked up on, on, on incredible stories that, that really got in the weeds on some of this. Um, and that was obviously complemented really well by a lot of the local reporting that was being done, um, you know, especially in places where, where you have a significant proportion of defendants, right? I'm thinking Florida, I'm thinking California, New York, Texas. Um, but I think like, even despite all of that, right, as, as we sit here, you know, 13 months on, you know, there's still a lot we don't know about a lot of these defendants in terms of, you know, what exact set of circumstances brought them to the U.S. Capitol, um, what what the motivating factors were, the, the mobilizing concepts were. And, and so I, I really just say in terms of like gaps that I think personally, I'm just absolutely fascinated by it's um, getting, getting a really deeper granular sense of, you know, what, what each of these individuals uh, was, was inspired by. I think that as, as Bennett said earlier, you know, as, and again, as, as someone who uh, probably, wrote, you know, wrote a piece on the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, you know, I, I can't really say this with a straight face, but like that there arguably is an overfocus on the, the individual um, militant networks, as, as we called them, who, you know, based on our, our latest data and research, you know, make up like 11, 12% of, of the total folks and most of whom did not engage in violence. And so it, it really is, is important to, to not risk missing the forest for the trees and to really make sure that, you know, as this work continues, not just by us, but by other um, research centers um, to, to really get a grasp on, you know, the, the totality of who these individuals are. So, I don't know, this is something I've been meaning to talk about, but haven't had a sort of public opportunity to talk about it. So if I go on a rant, I hope hope the listeners will will indulge me for a second. Although I heard the last time John was on the Loopcast, he got a two hour episode 
so I guess I have 45 minutes left in looking at it from that direction, but I'll, I'll try to be a little bit shorter than that. I think January 6th was a, was a typology of an extremist event, and it'll continue to be a singular sort of image for domestic violent extremist movements in the future. And I think one of the things that kind of got lost in the midst is, you know, obviously there were instances of January 6th-like attacks that had occurred prior to it. Uh, you know, I mentioned one at the Michigan State Capitol, but on January 6th itself, uh, a number of Proud Boys and other right-wing demonstrators uh, were outside of the Oregon State Capitol. Um, and, uh, you know, they had a, a clash with uh, counter-protesters and, uh, you know, there was also violence at the Oregon State Capitol on January 6, 2021. Uh, but there was one person that was at the Oregon State Capitol, uh, again, allegedly, because I don't think he's been charged uh, in any respect for stuff that was going on there, even though he was pictured there, uh, that sort of is my sort of biggest question about what's going to happen with the January 6 defendants more broadly. And that, that person's named uh, Kyle Brewster. Um, and I think it's an interesting example because if for if you don't recognize that name uh, immediately, you know Kyle Brewster was at the January sixth um, uh, sort of fracas outside the Oregon State Capitol, you know, with a bunch of Proud Boys, uh, uh, you know, armed with wasp spray and some of the other sort of new types of um, weapons that folks were carrying to those sorts of protests. But uh, you know, about thirty years prior. Um, you know, Brewster's a guy in his 50s, and about 30 years prior, uh, he actually went to prison uh, because he was implicit in the murder of um, uh, Mulageta Sarah, uh, a Ethiopian immigrant in Portland. And at that time, uh, Brewster was a skinhead uh, and an affiliate of um, uh, white Aryan resistance, uh, Tom Metzger, those kind of folks as well. I don't think the story's got picking up a lot, uh, picked up outside of Oregon local media and, and, and some other outlets as well. Um, but, you know, this kind of long trajectory of this one individual over about 30 years, uh, you know, sort of puts him within the specter of various trends in um, in right-wing extremism and, and within white nationalist uh, and white supremacist extremism specifically. Uh, that leads me to question, you know, what the longer-term trajectories a lot of the January 6th defendants uh, will face as well. Like, what will I find out? about a January 6th defendant in terms of what types of activities they're participating in, in in five, 10 years down the road as well. Uh, you know, with Brewster, it was at every stage, you know, first a skinhead uh, involved in this murder that later leads to a lawsuit against Metzger and the demise of uh, sort of that area of uh, the skinhead movement. And then, you know, later on, he's in prison. He joins a white supremacist prison gang. gang. He gets out goes back to prison, comes out again, and, you know, now he's affiliated with the Proud Boys. I think that a lot of the attention on January 6th has been sort of, um, like, focused on developments that have occurred in the past year because we're only a year out, but uh, these are the types of events that have a longer-term trajectory, and with the the career length that it seems like a lot of right, uh, right-wing extremists and white supremacist extremists in particular tend to enjoy, um, you know, over time, it's it's it would be interesting to see what sorts of individual developments beyond uh, January 6th some of the defendants uh, get themselves into as well, uh, you know, because across the board, uh, a lot of the folks, especially the ones who have been sentenced so far, uh, have received relatively low level sentences. Um, there's not been, I think, a lot of uh, demonstrated opinions of remorse or uh, you know, guilt in any way for the individuals that have been sentenced. 
Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about what that will end up looking like for the future of the movements that were involved in January 6th later down the road as well. You know, in five or 10 years, a lot of these folks are uh, re-engaging after they get out, of, get out of jail or uh, if they're starting new ideas altogether or how they will carry on their own sort of careers into whatever the legacy of, of, um, of domestic violent extremism ends up being in the United States. I'm just gonna uh, try and get to two hours here because Bennett inspired me. Um, just one <laughs> last super quick thing. Um, something that came up um, in, in a lot of the reporting, especially by um, Jose Paglieri. Um, you know, one thing we see a lot in our data set um, is, or one thing that is an interesting little anecdote is how few individuals are charged with firearms possession. And I think that there, there's obviously the broader trend of, um, you know, the, the narratives that, you know, the individuals who went to DC weren't armed or that they weren't dangerous or weren't violent. And, you know, we can point to, um, you know, the long list of individuals who were charged with assaulting an officer, you know, using, uh, you know, a fire extinguisher, um, a ladder, pipes, riot shields, batons, uh, you know, anything you can think of. Um, but one thing, you do see a fair bit of, especially in some of the conspiracy cases are, you know, when you look at like the Oath Keepers Quick Reaction Force that was very aware of the firearms laws in DC and chose then as the government alleges, of course, to keep their keep their firearms that they transported in uh, the Comfort Inn in Boston, Arlington, Virginia. Um, and, you know, even, even a lot of the unaffiliated individuals, um, you, you do see conversations of, individuals being keenly aware of the potential for arrest and prosecution if they were to conceal carry or, or, or let alone open carry in DC. And I think that, that one thing that, that's come up a lot in, in a lot of this reporting, especially as you get a lot of the individuals who have been charged who are only facing misdemeanor charges, which as I understand it, in, in at least some of the cases won't mean that there's any kind of, um, you know, restriction on them purchasing guns. Obviously, they will have a probationary period of, you know, two years, three years. Um, but especially when you think about the potential for future mobilization, um, like we've talked about at, you know, when you look at the, the, the increasingly localized nature of this, especially on, um, you know, the far right spaces like um, the Proud Boys who have increasingly shown up at, um, you know, local school boards and state election offices and running for local local elections. Um, you know, the, this threat that we saw in 2022 state capitals. And, you know, I, I think it, it is an important factor to consider when you look at kind of the future trajectory of some of these threats that, you know, it's it's not, you know, insane to, to think about another incident like what we saw, as Bennett referenced earlier, in, in the Michigan capital in, in 2020, where, you know, mobilization to a state capital that has far less gun laws than DC, um, you know, leading to the increased potential for, you know, some kind of, you know, election-related political violence in in the future. And so I think as we keep kind of ticking out a lot of these Jan Six cases, that that's always going to be kind of a, um, you know, a little interesting consideration as we go. Well, there's definitely a lot of things to research in the future and keep our eyes on, and I know that. 
you both at Program on Extremism and Program on Extremism as a whole will be on top of it for sure. But I thank you so much for coming on the show, John and Bennett. And like I said to the listeners, I highly recommend reading the whole report because it's chocked full of information. But thank you so much for spending your afternoon with us on the Loopcast. Thank you very much, Chelsea. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Chelsea. Always a pleasure.